3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday, the 28th of February, 2023, and it's 7am. My name is Fung, and in the studio, I've got Jasmine with me. Good morning, Jasmine. Morning. How are you going? I'm good, thank you. Um, I should also note that later this morning, we'll also be joined by Caitlin uh, for her residency for IWD and Jen will also be in the studio a bit later so it'll be nice to have (laughs) to have some more people in the studio with me Mm -hmm. um how was your weekend Jasmine yeah good I've been really into uh, a new program called um the last of us have you how good (laughs) did you um, episode three oh just (laughs) it's so hard because like obviously we don't want to spoil anything for people who haven't uh, watched it but yes episode three is pretty special it's just beautiful I a lot of crying <laughs> yes I think that's the such a beautiful thing about this show is that every episode seems to center around like this beautiful some sort of relationship between two people or a group of people um really takes you on a journey <laughs> yeah and for those of you who aren't familiar with the program it's um based on a video game and so at times the way they've filmed it and the way that um, I guess like the sounds and people move through each scene it does kind of feel like a video game Um, but yeah it's great. Yeah it's so much more than just your regular zombie apocalypse program (laughs) (laughs) so I guess here from Jasmine and myself we give it a thumbs up so if you um, would like to catch something on tv every week make sure you watch the last of us did you watch yesterday's episode no no i need to catch up this evening okay i won't say anything (laughs) again it's a good one uh okay so let's go through what we have on our show this week we start off by speaking with Belize who is a Youth Affairs Council Victoria Young Health Ambassador and Social Worker and uh, she joins us on the show to talk about access for cultural and linguistic uh, diverse communities, um, their access to healthcare and also the latest on her project on mental health. At 7.30 we'll be speaking with Mary Leeworthy from Radical Directory uh, which is a public platform for information and updates about grassroots organising. So we'll be chatting about um, encrypted chat servers, decentralisation of data and the relationship between grassroots organising and the internet. And we will be playing an interview that Carnegie did with Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne, a group of Iranian activists and artists fighting for Iran, talking about their organisation using art as protest and the global movement to support Iran's revolution. 
And uh, finally, Caitlin will be back at 8 o'clock with uh, the next instalment of her um, International Women's Day residency. Um, So it's going to be a great show. Hope you stick around. Uh, We'll be back with the news headlines right after this. The Milky Way looks good in the night skies. The stars open a short from my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. Here are the news headlines for today, the 28th of February. The Coalition and the Greens have joined forces to move a motion this week to investigate how prepared Victoria was for the floods last year and how future climate disasters could be mitigated. The flood wall around Flemington Racecourse will be a major focus of the investigation after the floods impacted over 500 homes in the area. The decision to erect the flood wall has been controversial since it was approved in 2004, with Melbourne, Mooney Valley and Maribyrnong councils opposing it at the time. There'll be more to come on this in the next few weeks. Women in rural Australia are being forced to drive long distances to safely give birth due to staff shortages in regional areas, causing the birth experience to be traumatic and anxiety-inducing. Pregnant people are having to drive up to 100 kilometres away to give birth with additional stresses like navigating hotel bookings, isolation from partners and organising care for their other children. There have been particularly dire cases in regional towns where people are giving birth on the side of the road and midwives and obstetricians are saying that the situation has been deteriorating for years and was made even worse by the pandemic. An associate professor in midwifery at the University of Technology, Sydney, has said that maternity services are in the middle of a massive crisis, with midwives feeling distressed by not being allowed to provide um, continuity of care. Experts in the field and local advocates are calling for an overhaul of the maternity system with a focus on the best model of care for women and pregnant people, including continuity of care. In other health-related news, the Andrews Labor government is making sure that more Victorians can access rapid antigen tests free of charge to their local council. Individuals can collect up to two packets for themselves, plus up to two packets for each household member per visit, while people with a disability or their carer can collect up to four packets of tests. To find out if your local council is participating um, and to check the collection sites in your neighbourhood, you can go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash get a COVID-19 test. And the coronial inquest into the death of Kumanjai Walker resumed yesterday um, and will continue on for two weeks. The coroner's court is expected to hold more hearings later this year and an end date has yet to be set. This comes um, in light of Constable Zachary Rolfe having left the country after he has said he needs to deal with the trauma he has suffered. And Queensland has become the first Australian state to legalise pill testing. They announced on Friday that they will allow pill testing services for the first time and the move comes amid the government commitment to reduce risks and harms associated with illicit drug use. According to a press release, 
a press release yesterday, the government is currently developing protocols around how the testing sites will operate and will draw on experience of pill testing in the ACT. Those were our news headlines for this morning. We'll be back with a song after this message. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, March 5th from 12pm, featuring eight pop-up stages and performances by NAM favourites, Cable Ties, Kira Peru, Black Jesus Experience, Adjack Kwai, Pinch Points, Mindy Men Wang, June Jones, Georgia State Line, and heaps more. Plus, great food, markets, community stalls, and parties happening at venues all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Presented by Mary Beck City Council, a 3CR supporter. CR Community Radio, 855am. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Lucy Dacus. She is an American singer-songwriter, and this is a song from her 2018 album, Historian. This is Night Shift. The first time I tasted somebody else's spit I had a coughing fit I mistakenly called them by your name I was let down, it wasn't the same I'm doing fine Trying to track mine Regaining my self-worth in record time But I can't help but think of your other in the bed that was mine Am I masochist Resisting urges to punch you in the teeth Call you a bitch and leave why did I come here to sit and watch you stare at your feet? What was the plan? Absolve your guilt and shake hands. I feel no need to forgive, but I might as well. But let me kiss your lips so I know how it felt. Pay for my coffee and
That was, that was the song Night Shift by Lucy Dacus. First up, we'll be speaking with Belise uh, Tuyikeze, who is a Youth Affairs Council Victoria Young Health Ambassador and social worker. Belise joins us this morning to have a chat about access to healthcare for cultural and linguistic diverse communities, as well as her project on mental health. Welcome to 3CR, Belise. Thank you very much. Can you start by telling us more about uh, the Youth Affairs Council, Victoria, and the work you've been doing there? No worries. Um, Youth Affairs is Council Victoria, uh, which is an organisation that advocates for young people and promotes positive change, not only through building capacity or elevating voices of the young people, but it also focuses on nurturing connections. So I had an opportunity to be part of the Yakbeek organization where I was involved in the mental health campaign as a young health ambassador. And in this role, I was part of the team that was responsible for creating awareness and resources for young people from migrants and refugees to access safe and accessible as well as inclusive health care. 
Yeah, so uh, being part of the team, uh, being part of the mental health team, what obstacles have you seen um, that young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds face when accessing mental health services? Um, In other words, what's missing from the current healthcare system? Yeah, um, stigma is one of the many obstacles young people from refugee and migrant uh, background face. The stigma may make young people like feel embarrassed to access mental health care um, services. Lack of knowledge about availability and access to resources is also an obstacle that often goes hand in hand with language barriers among individuals from refugee and immigrant backgrounds. Perhaps one of the missing pieces in the current healthcare system is the lack of and the minimal cultural sensitive practice. When a young people feel their experiences won't be understood, they are more likely uh, to access. They are less likely to access mental health care resources. Um, in addition, mental health information shared is not always inclusive or tailored to include experiences of diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and this is a message that we've heard in relation to a lot of different services within the healthcare yep. system. Um, yep. So, for example, uh, reproductive healthcare and yep. um, just general services. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So stigma, you were saying, is one of the main obstacles that young people face and, and breaking that can be quite challenging um, and, yep. like you said, requires a sensitive approach considering that young people from different cultural and religious backgrounds have varying experiences. Um, Um, How are you hoping that uh, young people are supported to access mental health services, maybe via your project or um, just from health professionals in general? Um, Indeed, like we said, breaking stigmatisation requires a sensitive approach, which is quite challenging. Um, I think supporting young people to access mental health services starts as simple as asking a person on the type of care they prefer. Uh, Offering translation services is also important in addressing language barriers. Um, I think I hope to promote religious freedom and wellness by accommodating religious diversity. For instance, Offering prayer rooms as well as asking how to accommodate oneself is really important. Um, or, for example, most importantly, creating um, a welcoming environment that promotes access to mental health services. This could include, for example, it could be plans, flags, and maybe pictures that acknowledge their diversity. Yeah, that sounds really important. Um, I think you've said it there, Belise, like just asking people what they want and what they need in order to feel safe and in order to feel welcome. Um, That that sounds really important. So as a group of young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds, what have you found empowering about the process of creating these targeted resources for your peers? Um, First and foremost, I guess being part of this massive or this project has been really um, empowering for me. I guess creating targeted resources for our peers or young people brings a sense of satisfaction because it reduces the gap in the mental health accessibility. Knowing that I'm making or we're making a difference motivates us to continue advocating for underrepresented young people. Uh, we also are all from refugee and migrant backgrounds. 
but we all have a unique experiences. So diversity enables us to create more cultural sensitive resources for our targeted young people. And can you tell us what these resources look like or um, what sort of um, yeah, what sort of resources are you creating to guide young people through these healthcare systems? So within our project, we came up with the uh, resources of how to find, to identify the symptoms of mental health. We also had a toolkit of how to challenge stigmatization, not only by educating yourself, because it's not by yourself educating, knowing what really is, what mental health is or what it looks like, but also taking a step on teaching someone else. It could be a friend. It could be people within your family because it starts from within and then it goes outside. Uh, we also encourage young people within that campaign or the project to be able to seek for support or ask for help because there's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's always okay to seek for help. So encouraging young people to seek for support is really important. And we also have a toolkit of how to access information through translators or any professional from your own background. And lastly, we have the toolkit for uh, self-care because self-care is really important, self-love. So you're encouraged to care for yourself. Uh, Take a break if it gets too much or talk to anybody, reach out if you need help. Thank you so much for that, Belize. And finally, if our listeners want to find out more about these projects or find resources to help them or young people that they know navigate mental health resources in this state, where can they go? Um, I think they can find these under Yakovic Instagram page, under It's Okay to Not Be Okay. And other is just the website, Yakovic website, and just click under the, the mental health tab. You'll be able to find all the information there. Great. Thank you so much for that, Belise, and we'll make sure to include that information on our website as well. Um, I just wanted to thank you for taking the time this morning to speak with us this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. Bye, Belise. Bye. That was Belise Tuyukeze uh, from Yakvik uh, speaking to us about the mental health care resources that they've been creating for young people from refugee and migrant backgrounds in order to guide them through the healthcare system and make it a lot more um, a lot easier for them and uh, to support them along the way. Uh, we'll be back with another song right after this. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ujoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2:30 p.m. on 3CR Community Radio. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. 
Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Just wanted to reiterate the information you heard just now. Uh, so just a reminder that there is a a mass meeting uh, organised by the Gungara Environment Centre, or GECO. That's coming up on Tuesday the 7th of March from 6.30 to 8.30pm uh, on Elizabeth Street in Melbourne. And uh, just to talk you through some of the speakers, Marjorie Thorpe uh, and Natalie Hogan, Godfrey Mose and Tuffy Morwitzer. So make sure you're there. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Leah Knight. She is a Nam-based neo-soul singer, and this is her 2021 single release, Moon Baby. Your chain is on my dress side, your hoodie in my room. To collect them Another reason we found To go again Messing Round a bit late On your chest My whereabouts Candlelit lace Not the best On caramel Smooth Oh So smooth You and my baby
Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Before, we just heard from Leah Knight with her song Moon Baby. Radical Directory uh, is envisioned as a public platform for public information and updates about grassroots organising. Mary Leeworthy is co-founder of Radical Directory and has been doing technical and design work as part of the collective since 2020. Mary joins us today to discuss encrypted chat servers, the decentralisation of data and the relationship between grassroots organising and the internet. Welcome to 3CR, Mary. Very good to talk to you. Um, Mary, could you tell us more about Radical Directory and how the project began? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Radical Directory is a small collective of people who are interested in how we can use media, technology and design to support grassroots organising and uh, social movements. And... We started off in 2020 as basically just a group of people who were noticing the fact that it can be really difficult to participate in social movements if you're not on social media. And we were doing some brainstorming together of different um, different actions or strategies we could take to try to resolve that problem. And... Um, Basically, over the next few years, it evolved into a pretty big research project. Um, uh, and to me, particularly, I got really interested in the technology and I um, have just been looking at all the different solutions that people around the world have been trying to come up with to respond to this problem where essentially... Uh, data is being kept in the control of really big companies, um, such as the ones that run social media sites. And what are the different ways that uh, communities and people at the grassroots level can try to reclaim that uh, power and control over their data? Yeah, and I want to um, get to that point in just a moment. But before we do... Can you talk us through some of the dangers of using those big social media platforms to do grassroots organising? Uh, you said before that a lot of people feel like um, if they don't have an account, they can't participate. And at the same time, it feels like, you know, you feel resigned to have to use these things because it seems like there aren't uh, many other alternatives or at least, you know, ones that we don't know of. So, yeah, what are the risks involved of using these major platforms? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of different uh, aspects to um, or criticisms, I guess, you could make of platforms like Instagram or Facebook. Um, 
So, or even, you know, Twitter. Um, one aspect is just uh, the um, control over uh, who you're uh, who you're communicating with and under what terms. And, um, for example, uh, the algorithms that are used to kind of sort the information that you're seeing when you uh, load up your timeline. Because people are only using these platforms to connect with people that they know for the most part. Um, but over time, what we've seen is that uh, from the perspective of the companies, all they care about is maximizing your engagement. So they've progressively introduced new ways of structuring the experience of being on the site to make it feel a bit more like an entertainment experience um, and kind of injecting bits of content, bits of video that is not really related to your task of keeping connected with the people in your life and things that you care about. So one of the dangers is just like um, having your attention actually taken away from you because that's their goal is to take as much of your attention as possible and in the middle of that to um, expose your attention to advertisers, which is their business. Um, another danger um, when it comes to relying on big platforms is, I guess, broadly um, censorship or uh, criminalization even, um, which is two different things, but um, broadly it's about the decisions, the, the capacity that these companies have to um, decide what's allowed on these platforms and how untransparent and how arbitrary that can be and how not aligned it can be with um, the values that we might hold as uh, in, in the communities that we're in. And there is this uh, extra risk, which is to do with um, safety from criminalization, which is that um, in many contexts, uh, activism and organizing work is criminalized and uh, depending on the tactics and strategies that we're using, we can be exposing ourselves to risk of prosecution from the state, um, depending on the kind of information that we're sharing online. So these are just a few of the aspects, um, uh, the criticisms that we'd make of these platforms. And, and one final thing is that um, the way that these uh, pieces of software, that I would call them, are designed is really conducive to monopolization. Um, and what we're finding over time is that these companies are just getting bigger and bigger and taking out uh, more and more of our resources and mental space. And for example, uh, if you think of Google, um, one of the classic like big tech companies, um, this company has just grown in size and the scope of their products has just grown and grown to the point where more and more of our data is being you know, stored 
in their hands, effectively, and they're, in a lot of cases, free to do with that what they like and um, sell our information to advertisers. So, yeah. And on that note, Mary, um, can you tell us more about what the decentralization of data means? In your videos, you do a great job of explaining that to people. So I was wondering if you could um, talk us through that uh, this morning. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so for context, I recently made a few videos and posted them on Instagram um, and on uh, some other platforms. It's <laughs> hard to find platforms that are not kind of part of this problem, but um, something that I've been recently investigating is trying to use existing types of software that support a decentralized model, which effectively is a way of challenging the thing I just talked about, which is where software is designed in a way that promotes monopolies. Um, and the way that that works is that uh, we, when we're using um, different software or services online, we are generally logging in to, a, to some service which is managed by a server which is effectively a computer that is run by a company. Um, so we're sending our data to this computer and the computer, the server, is sending anything we want back, the, um, the, the bits of information that we're looking for. And that's what comes up on our devices. So with this architecture, they have the capacity to completely decide what is coming back to us and to change their mind at any moment. They might decide not to... Um, not to send it back. So with uh, decentralization, it's a set of techniques for keeping data in lots of places, effectively, and um, specifically, like, different servers that are run by different people. So we're not having this data controlled and gatekept by one organization, but instead we're... Um, distributing it across the network. So when lots of different groups and organizations are participating in that process, what we get is um, more options and more ways around the control of, um, you know, a potential monopoly while we still get access to the same kind of app and the same kind of experience and the same functionality that we're looking for when we use software. So that's uh, a kind of movement that's been happening in the uh, online software space for quite a few years. And um, one uh, way that that's being used is in encrypted messaging with a, a project called Matrix. So what I've recently been doing is setting up a matrix server, which is um, an encrypted chat server, which effectively is a place where um, you can choose to store your data uh, when you're using encrypted chat. So to clarify, 
the data is encrypted so it can't be read by me or anyone who has access to the server. Um, but what we're achieving when we do that is participating in a network that is resistant to this kind of monopolizing control. That sounds that sounds really um, incredible and, and such an important alternative to have to um, using these massive companies that, like you said, pose so many risks and dangers to us as individuals and collectives and organisers around this space. Um, Mary, unfortunately, we're out of time this morning, but I would love to have you back on the show to talk about this in more detail and especially the future of grassroots organising online. Uh, But just quickly, if there are listeners who are interested in learning more about Radical Directory and the work that you do, where can they go? Absolutely. So uh, listeners can contact us by email at radicaldirectory at protonmail.com or you can go to our website, which is simply radical.directory. Thank you for that. And we'll make sure that those uh, links are also on our website this morning. Thank you again, Mary, for joining us on 3CR Breakfast this morning. Thank you for having me. That was Mary Lee Worthy from Radical Directory speaking to us about some really important issues around uh, grassroots organising online and the need for alternatives to big uh, big internet companies and the monopolization of uh, internet platforms. Uh, we'll be back with our next segment after this. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Our next guest on the show today is Nazneen. Nazneen is a part of Feminista Melbourne, which is a non-based collective of artists and activists fighting for the freedom of Iran. Nazneen's been living in Australia for about 10 years now, and she believes taking up space in the streets is crucial to maintaining the democratic representation in any society. She's joining us today to talk about Feminista Melbourne's art activations around the city and the fight for freedom in Iran. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Nazneen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about Feminista Melbourne, how long it's been around, how did it come about? Uh, so it's a fairly new group, uh, but the people who are in it and uh, the works that we've done has been around actually for a while uh, because it's basically a group of friends who found each other in a moment that we needed uh, some more organized support. And uh, also, we also found a lot of like-minded people in the women life freedom protests in Melbourne that we attended. And it grew very naturally to a fully-fledged team, I can call it right now. And uh, basically, it also started from when we felt we need a name and uh, that can help us to get organized and ask for support easier. Because, yeah, we were finding it hard to continue with our activism, with, uh, you know, our own personal platforms, identities. We thought that if we join forces, uh, we can multiply each other's efforts. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's strength in numbers always. What does the name feminista signify? So it's basically the word feminist in English added with awe. And in Farsi, if you want to say multiple of something, you add a sound of awe at the end of it. Uh, so it's multiple feminists in Melbourne. Uh, there's actually a group uh, called Feminista Berlin. Uh, they're the first ones who started with this concept. And they have been uh, one of the most crucial activist groups providing so much guidance to other cities and other activist groups for our women life freedom revolution that's happening in Iran. Uh, members of that group, uh, they've been involved in some of the first protests in the diaspora after the death of uh, Mahsa Jina Amini. And they also have been involved in organizing uh, many art projects, campaigns to the German government, and uh, a very huge protest in Berlin of our revolution. And uh, I really connected with their sentiment and their model. And yeah, I got to connect with them and they gave us a lot of guidelines uh, for how what we can do to like basically fix the gaps in the activism of Iranian community in Melbourne. Sounds incredible. It sounds um, like a kind of global community, which is really nice, especially given what's happening in Iran at the moment. Yeah. So tell us about the art activations that you've been organizing around the city as a form of protest. So yeah, basically, I did some pieces in Hosier Lane myself, and just with a couple of my friends. And that was really important to us. I think maybe I've, I can maybe claim uh, that it was one of the first graffitis about uh, Massachusetts. I did it about one week after her death really quickly in Hosierland and that environment being allowed to do public art in Melbourne. And it's such a privilege we have here. There are so many spaces that you're allowed to do it. The police doesn't harass you. The building owners don't harass you. That so many other people in other cities don't have it. And so it started from that, and slowly it kept growing and growing. Uh, when I did the first one, then so many other people asked me, hey, how can we do a better one? How can we do a bigger one? How can we like, you know, do one that's permanent? And more and more people uh, got connected with me, and some people did graffitis themselves, who then I found out about them. So yeah, the graffitis have been really moving, especially um, that I feel as immigrants, not all of us never feel we're really like, you know, allowed to use this urban space. Also coming from Iran, we don't have the freedom to take space in the city. Women, men, all of us, uh, the outside districts, the public space is never for us. We have to like, you know, behave differently in it. Just the simple act of putting up some posters, doing a painting in a place like Hosier Lane was so empowering for all of us. Uh, and then other things got added to it. Several of our members started performances, performance dances to raise awareness about what's happening in Iran. We have done performance of A Rapist on Your Path. That was also really moving. And uh, we also got involved in another international uh, project. It's called Tehran Art Circle. Uh, which is installation arts that are designed by a group of artists who are in Iran right now. So they're staying anonymous. They don't have the freedom to do their own art uh, as they want, as they wish in their own country, because what they the subject matter is about the oppression they're feeling, and it's not safe for them to do it in the streets of Iran. 
so every week they're sending out uh, design directions to multiple groups in several cities. And uh, we are the custodians of that design. And uh, we are basically uh, making it happen. That's another form of communication we've been having with people. It's been very great. I see it every time. Everyone who comes and helps us, all the audience who come and see the work, they're moved by the subject, they're moved by the design, they're moved by the uh, message of it. And they stop, pause, take time. All the people who are in the CBD walking really fast and they're busy, they spend a significant amount of time with us talking. And that's amazing space to have for conversation and connection. Uh, other cities doing the same as well? You said there's um, Feminista in other cities as well. Is this a global thing? Yeah, so it's not just the other Feminista groups in other uh, cities. Some other cities have just different names in their team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there's Feminista Berlin, who's very active. There is uh, Dublin, uh, Texas. We had Istanbul and Los Angeles earlier on as well. Uh, we have Stockholm and uh, Barcelona, who've been really active cities. Uh, and yeah, there are pretty small starting points in each of the cities. And putting together a whole new original installation piece in one week, in like 10 days, with that time frame, in public space, spending time with people, explaining to them, is a pretty intense program. Uh, and we have done, uh, I think, yeah, the whole project just finished 10 designs and we have done two collection the first one was about the people who were losing their lives in the protests uh, the second one was about the injustice and the third one that we're going to start soon is about untold stories that sounds incredible and yeah like i was saying before it must be quite empowering to be a part of something like this. I feel like often, you know, when you're diaspora and you're not living in the country, you feel a bit disconnected from what's going on there. You sometimes can feel a bit helpless, you know, um, how can I help? What can I do? This is a really impactful, powerful way to make a difference um, and connect, I feel. Uh, We covered the artworks that we've done in Melbourne, but that's nothing in comparison with the amount of artworks produced about this revolution worldwide. And um, I'm hoping that one day someone will do a proper study on this uh, and compare, like, you know, how many artworks are produced during other revolutions. I don't know. Uh, but we all feel the amount of artwork produced for women, life, freedom, revolution in Iran is unprecedented. And I've been thinking about why that could be the case. Well, one thing, so many things are happening. So people are trying to communicate what is going on. But then I see that we always culturally in Iran, we speak in metaphors a lot. We use signs to like, you know, refer to something bigger. Uh, And those signs and metaphors are used in so many of the artworks and all over the different mediums. There is... Uh, painting, uh, there is graphic design for posters and what's happening. Uh, There are lots of artists who have done like at least one portrait for each person who have died. And, you know, we have their pictures available. So many people who died, we don't even have a picture of them. 
but at least the ones that we do. Animation, there is another whole genre of the revolution artworks that has been imagining the future. And those ones have been coming out in the moments that yes, we needed like, you know, something to hold on to. We needed, oh, you know, it's not just, it's not gonna be all dark and devastating all the time. If we do the right thing, this is the future. This is how it's gonna look like. Movies, videos, photography, music, so many revolution songs. That was part one of Carnegie's interview with Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne. They are a group of Iranian activists and artists fighting for Iran, talking about the organisation, using art as protest and the global movement to support Iran's revolution. We'll be back with part two at 8.15am. Next up, we're going to play you a track by Solange. This one is from her 2016 album, A Seat at the Table. This is Cranes in the Sky.
was a track by Solange uh, Cranes in the Sky. You're on Tuesday Breakfast at 3CR. My name is Caitlin McGrain and I am doing a series in the lead up to International Women's Day where I'm interviewing experts about gender and technology. So this morning we're hearing from uh, Dr. Emma Quilty, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Emerging Technologies Research Lab based at Monash University. Emma is an anthropologist and ethnographer of emerging technologies focusing on decolonial, feminist and sensory methods of research. Emma is here to chat to me about gender and technology, like I said, in the lead up to International Women's Day on Wednesday the 8th of March. The theme this year is Cracking the Code, Innovation for a Gender Equal Future. Welcome to 3CR, Emma. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. Ah, more than happy to. So... I'm starting each of these interviews by asking you, what does innovation for innovation and technology for gender equity or gender equality, what does that mean to you? That's a great question. And for me, I'm going to actually start with the question and what's the ordering of those words? Uh, So for me, I like to begin with the question of gender equity Mm. and establish, you know, what is needed for a particular situation or context and then decide whether like a technological solution is actually appropriate for it. Mm. That's a really it's a really interesting way of looking at it. So um, what kinds of things do you yeah, how, how do you enact that in your sort of in your research? Um, so a good example is a, a short film we worked on last year with a not-for-profit, She's a Crowd. So I was already undertaking some research as part of a project looking at automated decision-making in transport. Mm-hmm. And I met with them and really, you know, didn't start with a, here's, here's my idea for some sort of, you know, innovative or, or technological idea or solution. I just said, let's let's talk. You guys are the experts on, on gendered violence and transport. Let's, let's, you know, figure out a problem and then work on a solution um, from there. And that's how we came up with the idea of, you know, creating a short docudrama film, which is not what I expected going into mm. that, that particular project. That's really interesting. And so when you're talking about, I, I guess, I just want you to unpack automated decision making in transport. So like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, so a lot of us already experience automated decision-making uh, in our vehicles now. A lot of us have these safety features built in that are making decisions for us. So uh, say you're getting too close to the car in front of you, your car will give you a couple of beats to remind you uh, to, actually, to to slow down. Mm-hmm. So that can be understood as a, a piece of or an example of automated decision-making. Thinking about automated decision-making and transport into the future, 
uh, things become uh, a little bit different. You, you sort of see these visions around uh, self-driving vehicles where we take all of these safety features uh, to their extreme mm. and we're no longer in the driver's seat. Technology is in the driver's seat. I see. And so She's a Crowd, they do research into gendered violence in sort of public spaces and is it to do with ride sharing? Not specifically, mm. um, but that is one of their areas. So She's a Crowd is a data-driven tech startup and they use crowdsourced data uh, to try and make cities safer for women and gender-diverse people. Mm. Yeah. Um, how, do they, how, how do they do that? How do they use that data? Um, so they collect anonymous stories through their website and they've got multiple platforms on social media where they uh, communicate their research findings to the broader public. Mm. They also collate all of these statistics that are not currently being collected by any other yeah. you know, major bodies, any mm. public uh, like government or police bodies, um, and then they communicate those back to decision makers in government and urban planning so we can try and plan around uh, making cities safer for women and gender diverse people instead of a sort of um, masculine centric urban planning design model. Yeah, right. Okay. So that sounds like a really um, important piece of work. And I'm, uh, I'm happy that those people are collecting that data because it really, it really doesn't get collected very often. Um, so how I think what I'm really interested in is how you're sort of troubling and thinking about the ideas of like what does what does innovation mean? Like how does innovation sort of drive the way that we think about things like gendered violence? And wondering whether you had any further thoughts about how innovation intersects with gendered violence in in your work, and uh, your sort of critical, like you said, you talk you are interested in sort of decolonial feminist um, approaches. So sort of how does that play out in some of your work? Yeah, so I I have quite a few problems with the word innovation. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I, I see a lot of this, not just in transport, but just in the broader sort of mm. AI automated decision making space where we're seeing innovation driving innovation. Mm. Um, so for me, again, like I said, with the flipping of the ordering, I would put gender equity and decolonization first. I think they need to be the drivers. Yeah. not innovation. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's really that's really good. So you told me that you're working on a paper on this concept that you call the pod man who sits at the intersection of innovation, technology and gender. Can you tell me about the pod man? Who is he? Does he only <laughs> appear on podcasts? Um, and what does your conceptualization of this archetype mean for women and gender diverse people? So just there, talk me, talk me through the pod man, basically. So Podman was uh, born out of that project I mentioned before about transport and automated decision-making. So I reviewed a whole lot of papers, um, so great literature, government reports, and importantly, strategic planning documents for the future mm. of transport in Australia okay. to find out what, you know, what are their plans, what is their vision, because, you know, historically control over transport, um, that that's such an incredible amount of power over a city and over a society, but equally so is planning the future of that transport and who is imagined to be in that future, enjoying mm. the benefits of these, you know, future technologies and, and innovations. Mm. Um, so Podman, he embodies the benefits of what I call an automated mobility future. So mm. increased 
safety, increased productivity, so-called better accessibility, improved sustainability, and lastly, eliminating this sort of burden of driving. So driving is now, you know, something convenient because the car drives you. So mm. Podman is this sort of archetype of the ideal transport consumer. He's white, masculine, able-bodied, uh, has large amounts of disposable income and network capital. So the idea of, of embedding this kind of uh, persona in these future plans reinforces traditional gender and family roles. It, it gives us this kind of comforting reassurance that while technology is advancing really quickly and all these changes are coming, domestic ideals will remain the same. I see. Okay, so how? So in your in your conceptualization of the Podman, do women and gender diverse people sort of do they sit kind of alongside or in the background of this of this sort of idealized vision? Yeah, they're in the background. They're right. in the they're in the passive passenger seat. And I can send you another image uh, that I've created out of this Podman persona, a gentleman I call Family Man, <laughs> uh, where his wife is um, pictured in the back seat uh, entertaining the children, but he's still in the front seat, traditionally where the steering wheel would be, but he's reading the paper. Amazing. There's so many advertisements of self-driving vehicles that portray this particular gentleman, you know, reading the paper or working on his laptop while his car chauffeurs him around. Okay, this is like you're painting a very dystopian sort of picture. And I think it's something that maybe, I mean, certainly, I I can't speak for the listeners, but I certainly imagine that's exactly what I imagine is happening in the background of all these technologies. And I think it might be fairly, it's fairly confronting to think that that's actually what's going on. And that's you're drawing from this research is drawing from like policy and sort of decision-making documents. Can you talk us through sort of how you, like how you found the pod man? How, how did he come to be? Oh, absolutely. Um, so that was part of the, the scoping of all of those papers, right? So I mm. collected all of these documents, set the particular parameters for the years, only looked at papers associated with Australia and Australian uh, plans for the future mm. and came up with those um, alleged benefits that right. a, uh, a self-driving or a technology-driven future of transport would bring increased safety productivity. By the way, these are the same promises that have been promised in the 1960s when highways weren't a thing. <laughs> yeah, right. When we were establishing <laughs> things would be safer and more accessible if we just had highways. And now uh, that was, you know, kind of the the era of engineering and now it's the era of AI. Mm. Um, that these are the new, you know, sets of promises. It's a bit of deja vu. Um, so I wanted to create uh, scenarios or vignettes Yep. out of these sort of benefits. And this is a really common technique done by not so much government bodies, but more so your consultancies like McKinsey and Deloitte. Yep. Yep. They will help uh, planners by putting themselves in the shoes of, you know, these kind of future users. So meet Scott. He's a transport user of the year 2050. Um, he has jumped in his car and his car is connected to his insurance company. Um, so I wanted to pull out these benefits, but also pull out the kind of embedded social values that mm. were coming through about who was meant to enjoy 
these benefits. You know, they talk about early adopters or the innovator, you know, classes of society who, you know, are also people who have um, higher education, large amounts of disposable income. They have the ability to take risks uh, Mm. to use these technologies where a lot of... um, you know, uh, like a single mother or, you know, families with a lot of caretaking responsibilities, taking a risk on these sorts of technologies is not actually feasible. Mm. Um, so they're the ones who are, you know, first going to take the risk on them, but also second going to enjoy the benefits first. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm really glad that you've done that research because I think it's the kind of thing that is really easy to gloss over. It's really easy to kind of get caught up in the in the idealised vision of what uh, transport could look like when, you know, we really haven't actually addressed any of the kind of existing, really serious kind of accessibility and safety issues that are affecting kind of the most marginalised people. So do you think that, or do you, do you have a vision for how your research is going to inform like those sorts of decisions? Yeah, so we hosted a symposium late last year where we invited uh, peak bodies in this sort of automated decision-making transport world, so all the people running the self-driving car experiments or vision. Um, We also had automotive um, uh, car companies, so like Volvo, we had Mm. people there, So we and government officials as well. Um, We presented Podman, we presented the results of the report. The report's actually... um, published and available online, so I can send you a link. Yeah, thank you. Um, So, yeah, being able to um, give them those research findings uh, in the form of the report, because, you know, governments love a report. They do. Um, Mm. But also just, you know, almost using their techniques of the consultancies by using storytelling and creating the image of Podman, it's really powerful once you literalise and characterise and visualise in person everyone in the room went oh yeah yeah I recognize him yeah right (laughs) (laughs) incredible um so what kinds of things are you working on next are you taking you know are you going to do anything more with the pod man are you doing more with she's a crowd sort of how do we how can we find out more about your work uh so you can follow my twitter uh for updates on my research Right now, I'm staying in the mobility space, so I will continue working with Podman. I'm going to be publishing a paper, a couple of papers this year, uh, really fleshing him out as a conceptual character. Mm. Um, I'm also moving into working a little bit more in the net zero space, so looking at the intersection of net zero, uh, colonisation and gender and mobility. Oh, that sounds really exciting. Could you tell us just like a tiny bit about what, about that? Absolutely. Um, so a lot of governments, uh, you know, kind of realising that in order to transition to net zero, we need to be thinking about things on a local level, uh, trying to uh, convert or transition an entire state to net zero, for example, is incredibly complicated and near impossible. So... Uh, I use my uh, anthropology training to work at that really ground level with communities and understand their visions, if you will, of a a net zero future. And a lot of those visions uh, when it comes to net zero, whether it's about energy or mobilities or automation, are bound up in their everyday lives, which are, you know, still 
very firmly influenced by processes like colonisation and gender inequity. That's very exciting. I can't wait to read about that. That sounds very cool. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Emma. I will let you go and, uh, yeah, I'll I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Anytime. That was Dr. Emma Quilty, postdoctoral research fellow at Monash University, talking to us about emerging technology and gender equality. You're listening to Three. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, We're now going to listen to part two of Carnegie's interview with Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne, where they talk about her experience growing up in Iran, what's coming up for Feminista Melbourne, and how we can join the fight and support Iranian women calling for a revolution through women, life, freedom. Uh, You lived in Iran fairly recently. Can you tell us a bit about your own experience living there under the Islamic Republic regime? Yeah, so um, I grew up in that regime. I always knew that, you know, my family uh, were more modern than the rest of the other people. But I always also knew that if something goes wrong in my family, uh, if suddenly, you know, my parents become abusive toward me or something like that I really don't have anyone in the society to protect me that was kind of the feeling I always had even though like my parents are pretty nice people I don't know why I always had that fear but I did now that I'm looking back at it and a part of that comes from you know learning from a pretty young age that uh, you as a woman your life your opinions what you want to do uh, your space in society is always conditional to somebody else giving you permission, allowing you. That now that I'm looking at it, it, it is not a good environment to live in, to grow up in. I was privileged more than so many other people that I could uh, get good education, have good parents, uh, have a financial stability. But yeah, it feels like you're always living uh, in an unstable environment because so many things are mismanaged for so many aspects. that, And you don't, as a citizen, there is no clear path of making sustainable change in your society because the democratic system is 
corrupt, is flawed. It's a dictatorship dressed up as a democracy. And as you grow up, as you try to make change and then you see the backlash, you go through experiences like that. It's pretty, I, I don't know how to put it in words, sorry. But yeah, you lose all hope. And I have seen it in so many people. Right now, with the revolution that my country is going through, the most inspiring aspect of it has been seeing how many people actually do have hope. How many people actually do believe in if they put in the work, if they put in, and if they add into the numbers, and if they keep on the pressure, change will happen. And that is amazing. Um, I feel that's something that we owe it to the power of social media of connecting so many of us together directly. I know uh, there's also a lot of misinformation and negative energy and fights just on social media. Uh, but when I was living in Iran, I never knew how many other people, how many other women don't like the compulsory hijab or don't like this rule or that rule or what's forced on them. I learned all of that when people started sharing on social media. Yeah. And yeah, now I can see the power of change. Uh, I wish we knew it earlier. I think as a society, we have felt a lot of times that what we're feeling is only our problem and other people don't feel that and we're all very different. Uh, part of it is maybe because we always had to uh, live a double life, have our own private life, our true life at home, and lie and pretend to follow different rules when we're outside. And with the social media and more communication, that barrier got broke down. It's also just so incredible that it's being completely led by women. In Melbourne, um, the protests, there's women at the front line, there's women... Yeah. Um, of, of all ages and all backgrounds, all um, from Iranian society, which is absolutely incredible to see. So I think it's a great example for the world as well to see yeah. that women can lead real massive big change. You know what? Uh, that sentence, I was feeling it really strongly that, yes, this is a women-led revolution at the really early stages. We are in month six now. It's been almost six months uh, past the death of Masa Shinayamini. And at some points, ourselves in the diaspora, there's a lot of arguments that we've gone through. There has been a lot of discussions. And, you know, like, there are people who don't want to keep the protest environment safe for other people. So there is, like, fights, arguments, things like that happen. And those people usually tend to be very loud men. So they were, like, taking up more space. And I was actually, like, you know feeling a bit sad. I was like, yeah, this is started by women, but it's going through all of these other changes and we're getting silenced, we're getting lost in the all the shouting and the chaos and the arguments. But today, just before my talk with you, uh, I saw this video posted from city train, so underground train in Tehran, in the train carriages. There's a guy who is shouting at the other guys, telling them, why aren't you getting up? Why aren't you fighting? None of us can live anymore. The prices are so high. This is not living in What are you afraid of? Our girls fought for us. 15-year-old girls died on the street for my freedom, for your freedom. And you're not getting up and you're not doing anything and you're just sitting and doing your daily thing. Um, 
it was interesting seeing such strong emotions from someone who was just like very angry at people. But then it was also a bit worrying and sad that then no one in the train carriage at least looks because was directly reacting to him. People were like shoot, filming him. Uh, but yeah, that sentiment, I feel people are getting going back to it again. Uh, that the revolution started from women and our issues. It has gone through so many different stages so far. I feel like this is a stage that people are, have started reminding themselves, hey, what was there at the beginning? What were we fighting for? What happened? Who died? What? Like, let's not forget that. And I don't know what will happen at the end of it, but uh, our society have gone through very important uh, changes that we can never go back from. I hope we don't. I don't think I will ever be able to. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't it doesn't feel like, um, you know, everybody that I see fighting. I don't think that they're ready to give up and I don't think they're ready to let go without change. So and speaking of women leading the charge, there's going to be a protest on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day that um, Feminista is organizing. How can our listeners be a part of that and be allies to this cause? Yeah, uh, the International Working Women's Day protest on the 8th of March in Melbourne is happening on f- at 5.30 in front of Old Treasury Building. Uh, the Trades Hall is organizing this protest and uh, we have contacted them. Uh, they basically told us, yes, come in with your placards and your signs and join the movement. And uh, we are going to bring a lot of placards. So please come. Follow us on social media. Uh, our Instagram is feminista.melbourne. And I'm going to post a lot of information there. So you can find our group <laughs> in the crowd. And you can be part of the protest with us. I'm hoping to be able to organize a sing-along, maybe before the protest together. Uh, and that is a sing-along of a song called Equality Song. It's a very old song about... Uh, feminist movement in Iran, equality uh, that women were asking for. That piece, I'm hoping I'm hoping that we can organize it. Uh, but yeah, the main protest is the big protest of Melbourne. Melbourne, the city of protesting. We really shouldn't let these amazing spaces uh, to be gone easily. So many people have fought before us to keep it. Uh, we should do our part. So yeah, come and join us 5.30 on the 8th of March in front of Old Treasury. Amazing. And speaking of um, supporting the movement, how can listeners support your art as well, which is, of course, its own form of protest ongoing? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, For our art, uh, follow us on social media. We have a fundraising. uh, The link is in the bio of our Instagram that you can donate to. But sharing, coming and seeing the artworks, participating in it, uh, the artworks are really big and you can be part of it and you can, you know, come and help out a little bit here, a little bit there. It's such an amazing experience uh, making a piece together uh, that, yes, definitely you can be part of that too. And we do need people from, honestly, with all the skills photographers, videographers, people who can make things, people who like to paint, anything. Come and talk to us. There's something that you can do. But in general, if you want to support uh, our revolution, Women, Life, Freedom, Revolution of Iran, the main important thing is to 
don't get used to the death and devastation that's happening in Iran. Don't let yourself get used to it. It happens a lot that people in other countries, at least that's what we see sadly, they behave as if dying in Middle East is normal. They care way more for a tragedy that happens in Western countries. And when it gets to Middle East, it's as if yeah, you're living in the Middle East, it's your own fault, that's just what it is. Oh, I'm very sad, move along. But no, there's a lot that people living in Australia, people living in other countries can do. We cannot bring this dictatorship. Maybe we can bring it down on our own, but that would take a lot of time and more innocent lives. But if you help us, if you help us to get Western governments to put more pressure on Islamic Republic, cut its financial ties, reduce its legitimacy on the international stage, uh, reduce its access to information, to money, to commerce, to all of these other whatever that the regime needs to survive, uh, then you will help the people in Iran to bring down this dictatorship much faster and much sooner. The Islamic Republic has a very sophisticated uh, propaganda machine, financial machine, uh, war machine, all of that. There's a lot of complexity about what's going on, what's happening. So I think the best thing is if you listen to Iranians and listen to many of us so you can get a better picture. I believe that if you put pressure on the Australian government to stand up for women's rights in Iran, it's going to be much harder for them to take women's rights away from the women of Australia. This can be a moment for so many groups from all over the world to come together. Uh, people of Iran have done something unimaginable. None of us ever even imagined we will see a day that there will be massive protests all over Iran, continuing day after day. All of the people who died, their lives were valuable and they sacrificed it for something better and for something bigger. Everyone also, everyone else should do their part for freedom as well. A really great way to end this interview. Thank you so much for joining us today and talking us through not only the incredible art that you've been doing in the city, but also through the revolution in Iran. We're really grateful for your time. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was Nazanin from Feminista Melbourne talking to Carnegie about art as protest, Iran's women-led revolution and their upcoming uh, International Women's Day protest, which is, of course, happening next Wednesday, the 8th of March uh, at 5.30pm. Um, just to reiterate, they are meeting at Old Treasury Building uh, in Melbourne. That brings us to the end of the show. If you would like to listen back to anything, if you missed it this morning, you can head to the 3CR website, uh, the Tuesday Breakfast page, and we will be podcasting the show later today. Keep it locked to 3CR. We have Accent of Women coming up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.